listening to Demise of the Podcast with Patrick Attaway, my podcast where I discuss writing, specifically today my own writing as we get into green skin. Before we get into the book, I do have some news about my writing, if some of you want to call it that. I have given this a lot of thought over the past few months. And I've decided to give those of you who have already bought Disease of Ambition, one of its many editions, or Toxic Literature, uh, a bit of um, rarity to your investment. You'll probably find people taking this book to Pawn Stars in 20 years when Rick is in a wheelchair and even Balder somehow. And they'll be saying, this is Patrick Attaway's book, Disease of Ambition, that is no longer in print. So I took those two books out of print. And what I'm going to do, I've already put the books together. I don't have titles or covers yet. I have written introductions for them, though, so that's cool. But I have two books that I'm planning to put out this year. It could be tomorrow, for all you know. But... Since I'm currently still kind of promoting Greenskin and definitely want you to go buy that book, I do want to put out a better short story collection as well as a collection of novellas. So Disease of Ambition and Toxic Literature both have novellas in them, but I'm adding... Two additional novellas, one of them being A Painter, which I read in its entirety on the podcast. So if you want to hear a basically a free audiobook of my novella A Painter, go listen to that episode of the podcast. That's why it's so long is because I read the whole thing on here. It took me days to do that. But I'm also putting the Nero series that I read on the podcast I wrote specifically for the podcast. I'm now putting it in print. So when you buy a copy of this novella collection, it will have Claire's novel. It will have a painter, the Charles Price novella. It will also have the Nero series that was in toxic literature. And it will have the sequel series that I read on the podcast. The short story collection will have all of the short stories save for one that I released last year during my 10-week short story uh, release. And it will also have some of the the better short stories from Disease of Ambition and Toxic Literature. So the classics like Mount Venom will be in this collection. And since I'm not publishing it immediately, I might add more stories. I don't know. I've been thinking about writing short stories again because I'm not really interested in writing a novel right now. I've been writing some poetry. I'm no longer writing on Substack because I want to save all my best stuff for the podcast. My friend Chris texted me today to tell me that he's reading Greenskin and he's been reading it slowly because he's been busy. And my mother has also been reading it slowly because she's also been busy. My friend Steve messaged me yesterday to tell me that he finished it, and they all seem to really enjoy it. I mean, I know that my mother's a given, but believe it or not, my mother has told me when she did not enjoy something that I wrote, and it was the short story Collected that is in Toxic Literature. No, it will not be in the new collection. Several of those short stories, they're going to be in the vault for now. So if you have a copy of Toxic Literature, you're going to have access to a bunch of different stuff that isn't making it into this new short story collection. So that's cool, right? Yeah. I remember having an idea for a novel last night when I was in the bathtub. And I came up with the idea for Green Skin when I was in the bathtub. But I can't remember for the life of me what that idea was. The only idea that I've had for writing a new project was actually with the intent of writing a series for the podcast, which I think I'm going to do again because I don't want to publish a new novel anytime soon. But I still love writing and I want to do more content 
that's different for the podcast. So I was thinking about writing a series about Sprague. Now, if you're not familiar with Sprague, it is in the novel Surviving New America. And it's, it's a little bit like The Matrix, but it's not at the same time. It was a program that was designed by Mansur Sean. And it was a way to help people who were mentally ill. Maybe they were drug addicts. Maybe they were the elderly. People who didn't have a good life on the outside could suddenly have the perfect life. And they wouldn't have to worry about the real world. Of course, if you read Surviving New America, you know that the program eventually fails. But there's about an 18-year period where it goes kind of swimmingly. The thing is, is that if I'm going to do this for the podcast, I'm going to have to read more Surviving New America on the podcast to kind of contextualize things, just like I read Nero's chapter from Surviving New America on the podcast before I released the Nero series on here. But there's a lot more to it. And I went back and I listened to the episodes that I originally did for Surviving New America, and I noticed that I actually read a lot of the early chapters on here. I didn't skip around much. There's a lot from that book that hasn't made it on the onto the podcast, though. But I've also thought about going back and revisiting Demise of the Trinity again, which I've done before, and I've read a lot of that book on here, but... Not in the way that I did Birch or the Charles Price novella or the way I'm doing Greenskin, where I'm just reading without skipping much, giving you a lot of insight as I go along. And with Demise, I've actually got a lot of things that I've thought about in retrospect. But I don't want to bore people to death. That's the thing. I don't want to make this podcast all about my writing, even though it's a way for me to promote my writing. I like reading other authors too, obviously. Before I get into more of my writing after I finish Greenskin, I want to do something very different. So I think what I'm going to do is read a Hemingway novel. I don't like Hemingway, but I haven't read his stuff in a long time. And it would be interesting to see my reaction now, live, as I go through it. Much in the way that I did with Mansfield Park or uh, that Colleen Hoover book that I read on here. I kind of thought that the Colleen Hoover episode would be a big hit, but not really. <laughs> My most popular episode is for one of the Flannery O'Connor short stories. I think it's for good country people. Not, Ironically enough, not for a good man is hard to find. When I taught that in my class, it's like my students never wanted to read anything else. <laughs> And unfortunately, I, I think I had two students who, when they wrote about A Good Man is Hard to Find, they plagiarized part of their essays. And then my friend Chris, who's also a college instructor, I say also like I still am one, but he's a college instructor and he told me that that is probably the assignment that he has the most plagiarism for is when students want to write about that short story. I'm still processing my decision to quit my teaching position and what I'm going to do with my life because I have a career doing something completely different, but it's difficult because I studied to do something else. And that something else is not what I thought it would be entirely. What I like about teaching is teaching itself. I even like grading papers. It can be frustrating at times, but I like teaching students. I like working through issues with them when it comes to learning and challenging myself because I'm supposed to be learning along with my students. And I actually learned a lot last fall. And it's really sad for me that I may never teach again because the issues that I had were much like any other job where it was with management. My dean and my program coordinator just did not help me whatsoever. And then they waited until I was already started teaching a class to tell me, oh, no, you're not doing this the way that we want you to. And it seemed like a lot went wrong at the same time. Um, 
that was very difficult for me. And then I released green skin, I think maybe the same week that happened. And then within a few days, I got a very bad review from someone and that really fucked me up. And I didn't want to talk about it on the podcast and I'm not going to even acknowledge who it was, but you can go find it. It's not hard to find, but it was, it, it's something that I can't even talk about fully because I don't want to give that person any validation or attention because it seems like that's what they were seeking because everyone else who's reviewed it, everyone else who's spoken to me about the book, they've been more than positive about it. So it's just a lot to process within the past month and I'm, I'm going through a lot. I'm kind of spiraling a little bit when it comes to what I'm eating because I'm trying to very, to be very controlled about my diet. And this is really just my OCD reacting to the situation. I realize that because I don't have a huge weight problem. And the more I think about it, the more, the, the worse it gets really. So there's that. And I'm not really writing anything major right now. I'm not working any major music projects. I have a lot of ideas for them. But I'm letting them stew and percolate in my head for a while. Right now, I'm playing Minecraft and, and Pokemon. I'm waiting for Scarlet and Violet compatibility with Home. I'm really pissed off that that hasn't happened yet because I want to move Pokemon around. And now I have this book out and I'm very proud of green skin. And the truth is, is that a million people could give it a bad review and I would still think it was a good novel. That's the truth because I'm proud of this thing. I think it's everything that I wanted it to be. That's something that I, you know, there was that one episode on here where I said, you know, I secretly think I'm a great author, but it's not necessarily me that's great. I think that things that I've done have been great. I think Demise is a great novel. And yeah, it had a rough start when it was released because I didn't know really what I was doing when it came to self-publishing a novel, even though I'd self-published some books before then. Because by the time Price of the Trinity came out, I pretty much had all the kinks worked out. There weren't any complaints with the the formatting or anything with, with Price. But Demise, people were like, there are errors in this. I'm like, what the fuck are you talking about? I worked on this for over nine years. There shouldn't be errors in it. So I had to figure that out. And I think that Demise is... It might be my best work. It might not be. But it's one of the books that I'm most proud of. I'm proud of all my novels. There's the only books that I'm not proud of in terms of what they were are the two that I took out of circulation, which are disease of ambition and toxic literature. And not because the content itself was bad, but because the way I put them together and the way I put them out, it just didn't work for me the way I wanted it to. Anyway, I will stop talking about all that. Let's get into green skin. What chapter are we on? I have a bookmark that my wife gave me. Was it for my birthday or Christmas? It, it's a, an old library card. You know, those checkout cards. It's got something stuck to it right now. But she got it from Etsy or somewhere. And I love these old library cards. Every time I've checked out a, a, a book from the college library or from the high school library and they had these little cards in them, I would look at the dates and all the names on them. And I would think about all the people and what their lives were like and why they checked this book out. The fact that I was holding the same book that they'd held in their hands. Maybe some of their skin cells were still connected to it somehow. <laughs> anyway, we're getting into chapter six. Mom puts hooks on each of my ornaments as I put them on my, on the tree Dad has yet to stop roaming around the property, surveying every inch. Before he even stepped foot on the property, he kept commenting about the cost of mowing all the grass. I bought a riding mower just for my lawn. The rest can grow as nature wills it. Usually, Lynn is doing Mom's job by giving me the 
multicolored plastic orbs and telling me where there's a bare spot. I wasn't going to bother putting up a tree this year at all, but she insisted it would make me feel more at home. Thus far, I'm only missing my wife and replaying what she said about not wanting my green dick over and over. How are my parents not acting in total disgust for what I'm transforming into, yet my wife can't stop, can't stand looking at me? You didn't buy a star for the top? Mom asked. I did one year, I say. It kept going lopsided like in a Christmas story. Might as well buy you one of those leg lamps since you're living the bachelor life from now on. There are dolls for that now, Mom. For a couple of grand, I wouldn't have to sleep alone ever again. I reckon that'd be better than a mail-order bride. I wonder if your father knows whether God thinks that's a sin or not. The sex doll or the Russian bride? Oh, hell. She She holds her hands up. I think that... I don't know if I want to get into this, but one of the complaints, not about this book specifically, but about dialogue tags is that some people think, because I've heard this in creative writing courses and from other intellectuals of the, the writing community, that you shouldn't have anything other than said or says or ask or asked. But I like having actions sometimes. Because it, it's more realistic. People don't just stand there and, set, and just speak without moving their hands or making some sort of gesture or giving expression. Maybe you think it's not as good in terms of writing quality, but for me, I think it works. Dad finally lets himself inside and starts looking up at the high ceiling. Whoever designed this house was really trying to be unique but because it looks like a two-story home on the outside, but most of the space is on the first floor. There's not a basement. Instead, the upstairs master bedroom has a door leading into an attic storage space. I'm sleeping on the ground floor in what is supposed to be a guest bedroom. There's only a half bath up there. The nice tub is down here. I sort of imagined living in a cabin and splitting logs by myself, but I'm well aware of my limitations. Without internet and central heating and AC, I'm basically Chris McCandless. So, with this house, and this isn't based on a real house that I've ever been in, but I don't know if you've paid attention to home design within the past few years, but a lot of it's kind of odd. A lot of houses have popped up, especially around here, that have that weird wood paneling on the outside where it's like a slightly faded solid color. A lot of them are black or white, but then some of them are kind of like a green or a gray. A few years ago, when I was dating a girl out of town, I went to her sister's house and it looked like a house that should have had two floors. But it was a one-story house. It didn't have a basement. It may have had an attic space, but when you saw it from the outside, it looked like it should have been two stories, like a typical suburban house. And the design of it was strange because it had a garage. It had a not even a decent-sized kitchen. The living room was the biggest room in the house. It did have a back porch, but then immediately off of the living room was a short hallway there was one bathroom. It had a bathtub and a shower, and then three bedrooms, and they were all close together in this hallway. It was just a really strange house design. And in these newer houses that I'm, I'm talking about that have the wood paneling on the outside, they usually have that gray, like fake wood plastic flooring, and They'll usually have really nice fixtures for the sink and the, the bathtub, and maybe they have a fancy shower. But what I think about with especially newer houses is what's that going to look like in 10 years? Because now they're building those houses for pretty cheap 
We just came out of a pandemic where wood was very expensive. So obviously these houses that are going up very quickly are probably not built very well. And on top of that, they're probably built very cheap. So within all this time, construction crews, I'm guessing contractors and architects and um, real estate agencies have figured out a way to make homes quickly and quote unquote efficiently without costing themselves too much money. Apparently with a lot of these houses, the, what costs the most is installing the wires and the pipes. And you have to remember Wayne is living in what was supposed to be a subdivision full of houses kind of like that. And so my wife and I were driving to this small town that's about 20 minutes away, if even. And it'd been a little bit since I'd been through there and there were a bunch of new houses that have just been built in places that were just vacant land or, you know, the woods. And I thought it was really strange because a lot of these houses are just sitting there empty. And we have a couple of houses like that down the street from us. And they've been for sale for a while. And obviously no one's buying them. So it's very strange to me the way that someone is buying up a bunch of property around here, building these homes that all look the same. And immediately putting them on Trulia or wherever. It's really weird to me. So this is an instance where someone tried to do something like that in Noonan and Wayne has taken advantage of their poor investment. Of course, this happens before the pandemic, so they're not built the same way as these, as these other homes, but he's living in a very strange house because I don't know if you're seeing it the way that I'm describing it in the book, but after you get in the front door, the kitchen's, you know, after a short walk, you know, there's an entrance hallway. The kitchen's immediately on your right. There's no wall or anything separating it from the living room area. There is a staircase on the left after a little bit of space because there's also a hallway on the left leading to two bedrooms and a bathroom and maybe a utility room or something. And the upstairs area is just one big room. So instead of having an attic, it has this big storage space. Now I've seen rooms like this in other homes. Like I have an uncle who has what he designed with the architect as a playroom for his kids, but it has a door in the room that takes you to the attic space, not with a ladder, not with steps or anything. It's just there. And it's full of insulation and piping and stuff. I thought that was so strange. And my grandmother's house has a closet in one of the upstairs bedrooms that leads into a smaller closet. I mean, really weird designs all throughout the past 30 years. You're listening to Demise of the Podcast, by the way, where we talk about literature and not attic or crawl spaces. Uh, Marion, mom turns to dad, are sex dolls a sin? Is that like a voodoo doll? Dad asks. Do you want the chore? I ask. Oh, I saw the property, he says. When are you going to get the rid of the escort? Are you talking about the sex doll? Mom asks. Get you one of them electric cars like an Edison. I think you mean a Tesla, I say. And no, I probably buy a used Prius. We raised him wisely. Yes. <laughs> Marion says Edison, and as some of you may know, in Demise of the Trinity, the electric cars that stop working after the Wi-Fi shuts down in Demise are Edison's, which is a reference to Tesla, and they are refurbished, and their Wi-Fi connections are disabled for surviving New America. She uses the word we quite liberally. 
Ministers, pastors, and preachers have two jobs. They're rarely just in the church business. When he wasn't behind the pulpit or in the office next door, Dad taught theology courses at the local college. Teaching is not merely showing up in the classroom, though. Grading papers and coming up with lesson plans also took up his time. Despite that Mom also worked, she didn't have to worry about her job once she left her office. I mostly remember the dinners. Dad always dropped what he was doing to eat with us, and until I was about 10, he came to see me before I went to sleep. Between reciting Bible verses to chastise me if I verbally stepped out of line, Dad generally kept the conversation flowing with Mom. When we went to the beach in Destin, my parents booked a room at the Holiday Inn for two nights, so we spent one day at the ocean, and we generally ate Whataburger for each meal. But when we made the trek from the public parking lot over the creaking wooden walkway and to the sand, Dad stopped us before we took another step in the sand. Look at what God provided for us, Dad says. He made us the beautiful ocean to gaze upon as a reward. It's a treasure, Wayne. When you work hard and save your money, you can take your wife and children here too. I'm 28, likely to get a divorce, and haven't even had a pregnancy scare. Unlike my parents who maintained stable careers, provided a home for their son, and helped me well into adulthood, it took me changing into Swamp Thing and suing my former employer so I could buy a house. Okay. So, remember what I've said before about Wayne being an unreliable narrator? He mentions that he hasn't even had a pregnancy scare. Now, it's interesting because he's brought this up before, this idea of having a baby or getting pregnant, whatever. It comes back into play later in the book, that's all I'll say. And he even has a chapter where he talks about pregnancy scares to an extent. And those of you who have read the book know exactly what chapter I'm talking about. Someone lied to me along the way about how life was supposed to work, though. I worked hard, got a degree, married someone I love, and helped my wife when she needed me. For doing everything right, I know I must have done something wrong. Majoring in English or staying at a job that didn't value me. Not taking more risk. Again, remember that I wrote my college thesis on uh, toxic masculinity. Now I spent a lot of money so no one will see me when I walk out into the front yard. However, I have a pantry now so I don't need to worry about having too many cans of things I'll never eat. Mom brought me four cans of tuna because I've been stocking up for Lynn. I hate tuna. Rather than standing outside with slet... Sweat glistening on my pine needle skin and an axe in my hand. I'm reading a Reddit, Reddit thread while sitting on a rocking chair my parents gave me as a housewarming gift. It's from Cracker Barrel. Lynn parks her Versa at the end of the driveway and waves her index finger. Welcome home, I say. It's definitely a home, Lynn says. Are you busy? Just got off the phone with President Trump, I say. He wanted me to be the MAGA mascot because someone told him about a man with American red skin. Sounds kind of racist when I say it out loud. Maybe you can marry a Fox News anchor. They're pretty hot. Lynn sits on the white railing across from me and holds her hands under each arm as if she's cold, but it's 75 degrees today. Given her body language and lack of eye contact, I bet she's here to ask me to sign divorce papers. I put some money away, she says. I figure if I'm going to ask you for a divorce, I should at least pay for our attorney. Wouldn't that be covered in a settlement or whatever? I ask. I don't want anything from you, Wayne. Taking your money would make me forever indebted to you in some way. So it's over, I ask. You don't want more time to think or consider that I'm the same person you married? Only with skin greener than the sod in Turner Field? There's nothing to consider. 
You can meet me at the courthouse in town tomorrow, and we don't ever have to see each other again. What the fuck, Lynn? I ask. If I'd contracted a gum disease and lost all my teeth, would you divorce me then? If I, if, 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 if I was injured in a car wreck and unable to walk for the rest of my life, you'd leave? Those are rhetorical questions, by the way. I know you're not a mind reader, so I'd hate for you to think I expect an answer. You haven't considered what I'm dealing with, given that every time I see my reflection, I make Steve Buscemi look like Brad Pitt. I've lost my job, I can't go to the grocery store, and my wife has rejected me based on my appearance. Yeah, I know I suck, Lynn says. Ten tomorrow, Wayne. She's not fighting tears or walking away as if I said something hurtful. We might as well be strangers who accidentally looked at each other at a red light. If my skin was white again, would you change your mind? I ask. Is this just the excuse you needed to leave? I don't want to be married anymore, Lynn says. There's too much I'm missing out on. And I'm not going to wait for you to change only to realize we weren't meant to be when I'm 35. With that, I realize I don't really know Lynn. She resents me for taking her college years when she should have been fucking up, sleeping with more boys, going to a few parties. We wanted to get married within a month of knowing each other. Such an attraction isn't rare at all. People want to tie down one another for the sake of procreation and fulfilling a societal role. Watching her drive away, I wonder when I'll wake up from this nightmare so I can have another chance. I'd like to know my wife a lot better. Maybe I could help her find the happiness she's missed this year. If I don't go to the courthouse, what will she do? Maybe I should hire my own attorney. Such considerations are only selfish, passive-aggressive motives that result in more hurt feelings. Lynn said she didn't want to be married anymore, and she doesn't want to see me again. I suppose she was thinking about this before my skin changed. This chapter, for one thing, is kind of an example of what I was going for with these short stories per chapter. And this is kind of like a short short, the scene and the buildup after his family comes to visit him. Everything that has been going on with Lynn doesn't stop just because they get divorced either. And it's funny that someone might suggest that Greenskin is not realistic. It's a a, a quote-unquote literary novel about a guy whose skin turns green. Obviously, that's not realistic because that doesn't happen to people. But his reaction to losing his wife, even before she asked for a a divorce, is pretty realistic. I mean, he thinks that she might come and live with him. He's asked his mother to give him cans of tuna so that he can stock up and she can have them when she moves in. And after... She leaves. He didn't. He he doesn't just immediately move on. He thinks about her a lot. And by the way, it is actually very common, especially for men, to try to move on very quickly after they've left a relationship. You've heard all these stories about women saying that they broke up with a guy, and then two weeks later, one of their girlfriends screenshots his new dating profile. You know, I used to work with someone. Actually, one of the characters early on in this book is based on her. She told me that after her mother died, two weeks later, her father was dating a new woman. Because it was so difficult for him to have lost his wife, he was immediately looking for someone to fill that void in his life. And it's not about trying to be disrespectful. It's not that he never loved his wife. It's a lot to deal with and you see Wayne is all aware of this when he starts dating again he feels guilty about it his guilt is pretty evident 
So chapter 7, to my recollection, gives us a little bit more of that classic, boring literary writing. Are we still putting money away for Lynn now that she's out of the picture, Genevieve asked. There's a coffee stain on the white tile floor under Genevieve's desk, and I want to scrub it away. But I realize others likely tried and failed. Having left the courthouse this morning, I fixate on little things I normally would notice. There was a billboard with an attorney's face glowing under a guarantee you wouldn't have to pay anything until you won the case. A rip and the board right at the tip of his chin had me thinking he had a small beard. Seems like something Wilson would do. Yeah, I say. Nothing big, though. We could talk about it later, she says. It's fine. What else have you got for me? I have your Roth set up and Fidelity submitted your taxable portion to the IRS. Apple was a little high this week, so I opted for Microsoft. I don't see them going out of business in the coming century. No Coca-Cola, I ask. We have some Diet Coke in the break room, she says. Stock, I say. Right now, it costs less than Microsoft, but it took a real dip in October. You want stability. Yes, I do. Apparently, that means living alone and contemplating my failures as a husband until I break in some way. I might have to go to Dragon Con and pose as an alien. Maybe then I'll find my tribe. You need me to sign anything? I ask. You did that last week, Genevieve says. That's why I asked about Lynn. That's the only thing I held off on. Cool. I would offer to buy us lunch since I haven't eaten today, but um, I don't think anyone will serve my kind. Are you a droid now? I'm glad you caught the reference, I say. I have a 40-minute uh, drive home. Why don't I grab us something and we can eat here? It's almost my lunch anyway. I don't know of a more awkward option to eat than Chipotle when the only noise is the computer and fluorescent lighting. Every bite I take of my burrito makes me worry my chewing disgust Genevieve. I loosen my muscles some when she takes a case of covered chip in her mouth and replaces all the other sounds in the room with her crunching. In this moment, I'm setting this up to kind of seem like Genevieve and Wayne are going to date. They don't. They maintain a very professional relationship. She does. She doesn't really treat him like a friend so much as just kind of gives him advice. So, yeah. And we've always had these. We've all had these awkward exchanges where we ate with someone that we didn't really know all that well. You from Douglasville? I ask. My parents moved here from Smyrna when I was fourteen. She says. Did you go to West Georgia too? Yep, I say. English major. I wanted to major in English, but my daddy said I ought to study something I could actually make money doing. People are never shy about asking what English majors do with their degrees. The implication is that you can't do anything with a BA, and that implication is correct. We don't all end up working at Walmart, though. Are you going to be all right, Wayne? She asked. Each time I spoke to Lynn recently, she said something worse than the time before. It definitely gives me a lot to think about. What could you've really done to help, Genevieve asked. I doubt you asked God to make you look like Kermit. Miss Piggy never got mad at Kermit for who he was, I say. I suppose this is the trade-off. I get to live like a hermit with more money than I'll ever need, and everyone will leave me alone like I always thought I wanted. Oh, you shouldn't be sad. Lynn did you a favor. When someone leaves us, we should thank them for freeing us from a lie. My mama told me that everyone has problems, and you just have to find someone you like well enough to put up with them. So, you're saying I should start catfishing women, I say. Genevieve has to hold her breath, her mouth shut while laughing so she doesn't spit Diet Coke on her desk. 
We have a professional relationship, but it's good to talk to someone. Maybe I should find a therapist. I did toy with the idea of having uh, a few chapters where Wayne talked to a therapist. I toyed with a lot of different ideas that didn't make it into the book. You can't live your life like Bigfoot hiding from everyone or you'll become like that old witch and Big Fish. People will just make stories up about you until they'll be knocking on your door with torches and pitchforks. So I should carry on with my life as if I'm not a freak, huh? Someone might think if you're a freak on the outside, you'll be a freak in the sheets. I don't like letting people down. As I'm walking in the hall to leave, the receptionist comes out of the bathroom and looks directly at me. I smile and nod, and she waves but backs away to her desk. As soon as I leave, she'll probably run to Genevieve's office. I suppose I can test the waters by picking up some Coke Zero at Publix. There's a 10% chance someone will shoot me, and even higher risk of someone trying to fight me. I'd like to see the statistics on an old lady screaming, though. The parking lot isn't too full, but there's always a steady stream of people coming and going. Taking off my gloves and jacket, I roll up my sleeves and check myself in the rearview mirror. I'm still green. There's a baser part of me that is always surprised. Dr. Till never figured out why, and no one in recorded history has turned green and stayed that way. Then there was the whole thing with the needles not being able to penetrate me. Last night, I cut up an apple I'd bought for Lynn. She never ate an apple whole. As if doing... So made sense, I stepped to the sink to hold my forearm over the drain as I tried piercing myself. It felt like a cold edge slid on me like when I accidentally walked too close to a a metal shopping cart. No blood. I tried stabbing my palm and there was the same result. By the way, this is also kind of a reference to to the Trinity. He's not part of the Trinity, by the way. This is just kind of a fun reference. I felt more sympathy for Lynn this morning when I signed the divorce paperwork. She wasn't there, of course. Her lawyer greeted me in the door, guided me to a desk with a notary, and explained to me there was nothing tricky about the deal. We were merely severing ties. Why would I fight the divorce when she didn't agree to marry someone who wasn't human anymore? Even when the thought of people seeing me inside the store repulsing me, Lynn's memory dances around my head as if taunting me. I expect each shopper to stop to look at me as soon as I make my way through the sliding doors. Instead, they're all doing their own thing. Each is a main character in their own story and probably with someone anagalous to Lynn who they loved but couldn't keep. Sure, there's a man who does a double take with a polite smile that anyone might make if someone held rotten fish up to your mouth asking you to eat it. A little girl in a gray sweatsuit walks next to her mother wearing matching clothes, and she pulls her child into the cart as if the floor is about to turn into lava. When I reach down for a 24-pack of Coke Zero, a man with barely any hair and more wrinkles than a scrotum holds up his finger as much as his arthritis will allow to stop me. Is that makeup? He asks. No, sir, I say. Oh, he says. Did you notice that woman that you just passed taking a picture of you with her phone? You want to help me hold her down to delete it? I ask. I'm afraid you'll have to do most of the work. I'll stand guard while you do it, though. He slaps me on the back and continues back down the other side of the aisle. I suppose the real test is waiting in line and letting a cashier ring me up. Public still doesn't have a self-checkout. I fucking hate this place. Everything is overpriced except their store brand, which everyone swears is quality stuff. And they always have two or three registers open with at least one dumbass carrying a whole cart of groceries in the 10 items or less line. Unlike Walmart, Publix cashiers will usually tell customers to move to another checkout. One advantage of looking like me is no one standing too close. 
Yes, people give me a few glances, and there's always someone who doesn't have the social etiquette to not take a picture. Making a big deal out of someone taking your photo results in them taking a video. The reality we all inhabit is immune to rules we used to abide by. Oh, the cashier finally looks up to see who's next in line. How are you today? Freshly divorced, I say. How are you? Fine, she nods. The bag boy's eyes might burn a hole in the countertop. He has a slight smirk as if he's going to start laughing if anyone speaks to him. How are you, I say to him. Mm-hmm, he tucks in his lips. They call you Boom How around here, I ask. That's when he breaks and the cashier's chin drops. I wink at the woman waiting in line behind me who is equally confused as to how to react. Five ninety-eight, the cashier says. Think I could get some help carrying this to my car, I ask. Uh, she says. Yes, sir, the bag boy says. This kid, who is probably 17 and making nine bucks an hour, doesn't deserve a hassle for laughing at a stranger. I imagine he likes going outside, and he was the only one in the whole store who was honest about his feelings. What did you first think of when you saw me, I ask. You don't have to be coy. I had to look away and back again to make sure I was seeing right, he says. And I figured maybe you had pain on you. But then, I I never seen a green man before, so I kind of thought it was funny. You got a disease or something? My doctor says I'm fine, I say. I feel good physically. Your wife leave you over this? Partly, yeah. Well, mister, I don't think that was very loving of her. Sorry about that. You have a good rest of your day now. You too. Now listen, Wayne isn't perfect. He's not the most honest person. I told you he was an unreliable narrator, if I can say it right. But at the end of the day, he is the protagonist of the novel. And he's more likable than some of my other protagonists. I mean, my second novel's about a serial killer, people. And Wayne doesn't hurt anybody. I'm not going to read the next chapter. I'll save that for next week or the next episode, whenever, whichever is first. But it introduces my favorite character. Her name is Summer. And it's spelled S-O-M-E-R. I indirectly knew someone who spelled her name like that. So, Summer is probably my favorite character I've ever written. I mean, I absolutely fell in love with this character. And, you know, just like there are parts of my wife in Lynn, there are also parts of my wife in Summer. And, you know, I, I, I talked about this a little bit in the last episode, but Lynn comes partially out of a period in my marriage when my wife was severely depressed and she's had two miscarriages since we've been married and she's not gotten pregnant since the second one. And that was in 2018. And so in 2019 she had a period and it wasn't really because of the miscarriages. It was because she grew up in an abusive environment And she left home when she was 16. She was homeless on more than one occasion. And she emancipated herself. So she has this built-in fight or flight in her system. And, you know, she tells me about how she talks to her therapist about this. And by her having a stable relationship was something very new to her. I think that this is the longest relationship he's ever been in. And she's been married to me for over six years. We just celebrated our seven-year anniversary of when we started dating. So by the time we got a few years into this, she was thinking, well, this is something I'm not used to. And she has kind of a reverse seasonal depression 
she tends to get more depressed in the summer, whereas in the fall and the winter, she's happy. And there were periods during 2019 where we didn't talk for days. And it wasn't for lack of trying on my part, but, you know, I thought things were, things were definitely just bad. I'll say that. And it's difficult to talk about without giving too much details because shortly thereafter, she ended up realizing, oh, I have got someone who stood by me who's taking care of me and she had a toxic friend in her life. And she's like, I've let this person kind of get into my head about my marriage. And she cut that friend out of her life. And then things got good again. And at no point since then, well, Oops, spoke too soon. I went through a, a period in late 2020 where I, I had a rough time mentally. And I haven't been depressed since then. So maybe it was my brain's last hurrah and spreading that negative chemical throughout my body or something. But I had a really rough time. And The thing about summer is that there are parts. Of, now, my wife read the book. I'll say this. My wife read the book, and she thinks that summer's her. She says that both Lynn and summer are her. And so when a friend of mine said that he read and he, he had a major crush on summer, she was like, oh, so he has a crush on me. Like, but summer's not you. And I'm saying that as an author to her. And she's like, it's me. And there is a lot of her in summer. I'll say that. A lot of the positive of my wife is in summer. Now, you'll see as we get into it that, you know, summer is very much her own character. And I made sure of that. Um, her background is nothing like my wife. Um, her physical form is nothing like my wife parts of her personality are nothing like my wife so there's that but still there are parts of my wife in her sure and i don't know we might do you know a few more weeks of of green skin i think i did five or six for birch uh, we'll just have to kind of feel it out this has been Patrick Gataway with Demise of the Podcast. Happy reading. Happy writing.